Well, good morning. You know, I was teasing with Phyllis. I'm glad that you guys showed up because when worship started at 10 a.m., there was like eight of us, and I thought, oh, man, all the stereotypes about California drivers are true. It sprinkles a little bit, and everyone's like, I'm staying home. But um, you are the chosen who have decided that you're going to be here. So, so props to you. I do want to get one thing out of the way because apparently multiple people, two people, in fact, were thinking of it, um, and that is... Um, that I am wearing my Canadian tuxedo, denim on denim, <laughs> which is a, a sign to you that my wife is out of town. I came today and someone said, nice Canadian tuxedo, and I'm like, what does that mean? So I had heard the phrase before, I didn't know 100% what it was. I went in that door and I looked it up on Google and then I thought, oh. And then someone else said it a second time, so if you're thinking it, I do know. I didn't know what I put it on, but I do know now, so. Um, if that's where you're at and that's where you're getting hung up, um, I free you of that. <laughs> hey, this morning I'm really excited to jump back into the Gospel of John. We've been going through the Gospel of John, and I can't think of a better way to spend my Sunday, and I hope you feel the same, than to open God's Word and just hear more about who Jesus is and what Jesus does. Every single time I hear it, I, I'm blown away. I learn something new. I feel like God convicts my heart of something new, and I, I kind of just leave with a big smile on my face. I don't know about you, but I love God's Word, and I'm excited to bring it to you this morning. Um, last week, we had our, our 40th anniversary, and so I, I feel like it's appropriate to kind of reset the stage and remind you of where we've been and kind of lay out the, the red carpet for Jesus to walk into this morning's sermon. So uh, Jesus, he is in Jerusalem and he's there for a very particular reason. It's one of the three big holidays on the Jewish calendar. It's the Festival of Booths, which um, I always felt like when I, I first read the Bible, like, man, sh they should have got a different name for it. You know, like if you were advertising, come to our Festival of Booths, I would be like, nobody's coming to that. Needs a different name. Would you agree? If you saw that on a billboard, you'd be like, I don't know what that's about. But let me tell you what it's about because it's really important. It's actually really awesome. It's this festival where everyone would gather in Jerusalem, and this is like the big celebration festival. Uh, I, I think I shared with you this uh, a few weeks ago, that there was a, like I think a second or third century rabbi, and he said, the rumors were that if you hadn't been to the festival of booths in Jerusalem, you didn't even know what rejoicing and celebration really was. This is the one that all the kids want to go to. They want to get out of school, even though it's a school day, so they can go to this one because it's singing and dancing, it's the harvest, it's great food, it's great company, it's joy all around. And that is why Jesus has gone as a faithful Jewish man to Jerusalem. And he finds himself there during this festival. The second thing you need to know is that this festival is not just let's show up and have a party. They're doing it for a particular reason. And there's kind of two main reasons, and if you're taking notes, you can write these things down. The first one is this is a commemoration and a remembering of God's faithfulness, God's provision, God's protection of his people when they wandered in the desert for 40 years, which is why they call it the Festival of Booths, because people would gather together, and they would make these, like, these makeshift huts out of uh, like plants and all sorts of wood and, and things, and they would, they would stay in these like shack tents under the stars with an open roof where they could look out and they could be reminded of a couple things. They could be reminded that even when our ancestors were nomads, wandering in a desert place, God protected them and provided for them. And being in that booth, sleeping in there as a family, every night for the week, was a reminder that even under these circumstances, God is faithful and good. 
The second reason was they were gathering to celebrate because God didn't leave them in the desert. If you've ever felt like you've been walking in a desert before, well, this is part of the good news of this celebration for Jews. It's that God didn't leave them there because they crossed the Jordan River and they came into the promised land. And the second part of the celebration was that it coincided with the harvest. And the harvest was this, this big, awesome thing because if you're wandering in the desert and you're wondering, what is our hope? What is our future? Well, God has brought you into, into a place where your hard work, the labor of your hands, actually produces something that you get to celebrate with. And so it was this enormous celebration. And I can tell that maybe you guys aren't thinking this is that awesome. <laughs> I think it's awesome. I'm going to preach according to how I feel, not how you're telling me you feel. How about that? Okay. Okay, so this is where Jesus finds himself. A couple weeks ago, Danny was preaching this message, and Jesus is super excited to, to preach and teach, and these crowds are gathering around him. Well, the Pharisees, they're not having any of it. Because this is their chance to shine. This is their temple. This is their authority. And all of a sudden, Jesus is getting too famous. So what do they do? Right in the middle of one of his greatest sermons, they bring a woman before him who's been caught in the act of adultery. I want to encourage you, if you haven't listened to that, go on our YouTube and check that out. It's an important uh, message. Now, I've been um, interrupted teaching before. I feel like whatever, you just move on. But I've never had that happen where somebody gets dragged in front and says, this woman's a sinner, we should stone her. What do you say, teacher? And Jesus dealt with that. I, I would say the, the takeaway for me from that message is that Jesus is full of justice and mercy. And in him, we get to see what both in their perfection look like together. This morning, we're going to turn to chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus' interruption of, of basically all the crowds disperse, and he looks at the woman and he says, I don't condemn you. But now that you know who I am, go and sin no more. Now Jesus turns his attention back to how he was teaching. Do you want to hear what he was teaching? Yes. So he's in the temple. And this is what he says, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. How many of you know that to be true? Just, you just know it in your heart that that is true. So I was reading these last couple days, and I was thinking about this, and I thought, why did he say that? Would you be weirded out if somebody just showed up and was like, I am the light of the world? Would that not make you ask some like, deep questions about who is this guy, and is he like, okay? Now, it turns out that there is a depth of kind of history and context behind this statement, because the more I read, the more I realize that Jesus being fully God and fully man, he didn't just show up and kind of like go through his notebook like, hmm, I wonder what teaching would fit the occasion well. Do you know that Jesus chose his words with intention? And so he chose these words and he chose to say them in this place at this time. And I got to tell you, I think he did it for a very specific reason. Let me tell you about it. It turns out that during the festival of booths, there's all sorts of rituals and things that happen every day. How many of you know that how Jews dress, how they eat, how they work, how they rest, everything is intentional and everything is meant to point back to the God that they worship? Did you know that? Everything during this festival is pointing towards the God that they worship. And so every night they had this ritual. They would gather near the temple and in one of the outer courts there were these four pillars, 75 feet tall. 
So huge, I want you to think giant pillars. And at the top of those pillars is a giant oil-fed uh, lamp or a lantern or giant inferno of fire, I think is what we're talking about. Are you getting the picture? Um, there are people who have tried to render what this image might have looked like, and I actually uh, took a picture off the internet. This is what people think it would have looked like. So I want to leave that up there for a second, just so you can kind of get an image of what this would look like. And I want to tell you why they did this. Every night, this is what they did. They gathered together. Now I want to remind you, there's no electricity. If you're walking out and about at night, you're carrying a little lantern for light. It's dark. There's not, what's the, the term, uh, light pollution? There's zero. You can see the, the stars like you could almost reach out and touch them. And when they would light those four pillars, it would provide the light, sources tell us, for miles away. The temple is on the mountain, and so for miles away, people could see the light. It literally gave them light. They could see where they were walking in a dark place. And they did this, and they gathered together, and they reminded themselves of a story. It was a story of the Exodus. Let me give you the paraphrased version. God tells Moses, I want you to march into the most powerful man on planet Earth's office and tell him, hey, we got to go. He's going to say no, and then I'm going to do a bunch of stuff. Then he's going to relent, and you're going to cross through the Red Sea, and everyone's going to be super excited. Following? So they are. They cross through the Red Sea. They're super excited. Then they get out there, and they're finally free. And then what do they do? We don't know how to survive in a desert, is what they more or less come to conclusion. And they think, oh, Sheesh, what do, we, what do we wish? Maybe we should go back to Egypt. Do you remember this? Because why? They're terrified. They've never been out in a place like this. This is not a, a place where you just walk by a stream and pick berries to feed yourself. It's a desert. And so they're scared and they're afraid. They feel alone. They feel without hope. Now they don't have any land. They don't know where to go. But God has promised them that they have a future and they have a hope. And he says... By day I will lead you by a pillar of cloud, and by night I will lead you by a pillar of fire. And when these Jews in the first century gather and they light those lamps, that's the story they tell. No matter where you find yourself, God will be the light that shows you where you're going. If you're lost, you can always turn around and see the fire because you know God will be faithful to you. How many of you already can say, that's a great message for me this morning? And so that's what they're gathering to do. When things get dark, when things get scary, when things get confusing, these people remember they have a place to look. Now, if we could put verse 12 back up on the screen. Again, Jesus spoke to them, and he said, I am the light of the world. That whole thing that you're here to commemorate and remember the presence of the living God leading you, that's me. In your darkest hour when you're hopeless and you don't know where to turn and you can remember that your ancestors looked to the pillar of fire, that's me. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I love this quotation. It um, comes from Alistair Begg. Some of you know Alistair Begg. And I put it on the screen for you if you wanted to take a look at it. It says this. You cannot truly know yourself until you truly know God. 
It's a simple quote, but it packs a punch and a depth of meaning. I think this is what he's getting at. You were made by God and you were made in his image. Do you know that? Without understanding who he is, you cannot totally understand who you are. And here we are where we tread water in the world and we look to the, the world and our culture, we look to politics, we look to money, we look to all these places and we're asking this simple question, who am I and what am I here for? And what he's saying is the only place that can answer those questions is God. And without him answering those questions for you, you are wandering about not living out the fullness of life. So Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. They will have the light of life. In me, you will discover who you are, who you're meant to be, what your calling is, what your purpose is, how you use your gifts to glorify and honor him. Before we move on, I, I just want to leave you with a couple thoughts that I had. I, I just felt like, man, what an incredible passage. And I was thinking of praying, God, what does it mean to me? So these are some of my thoughts. I, I made a slide for you. When you, and every time I'm preaching, if you see the word when you, that literally just started as when I, and then I'm like, hmm, they might be on to me. So uh, let's make it about them. When you feel a dark cloud settling over you, what is your go-to illumination? Let me tell you what I, I mean. Every single one of us in here is a human being. Well, some of you are like really gifted at certain things, and I wonder sometimes. Um, but most of us are just normal people. It's a joke. Lighten up a little bit. And how many of you know, like, I'm a freshly minted 36. Danny told me last week, welcome to the late 30s. So I feel like there's some wisdom. Um, 36, not that old. But I've lived enough life to know that, like, if I just keep going to bed every night and waking up every day, stuff is going to happen. Do you know what I mean? Stuff is going to happen. There are going to be tremendously difficult things that start to settle over you. There's going to be betrayals. There's going to be untimely death. That's part of the human experience. There's going to be a great friend until you realize, I thought you were my great friend, but maybe you're not. Your children, your parents are going to disappoint you. You're going to disappoint yourself. You're going to get passed up for a promotion you feel like you deserve. These things are going to happen. And I'm just going to judge based on all the nods that I said something that resonates with many of you. And so when that happens, what is your go-to to bring light, illumination to that situation? Now, I'm not saying this as an indictment. I, I'm saying this um, for you. But we are really, really good at resourcing ourselves with stuff. Let me tell you what I mean. How many of you have a go-to podcast? I have my hand up because I have go-to podcasts. How many of you have like an author that you just love to read? How many of you have like a news channel that you're like, man, when I'm trying to make sense of the world, that's the program I want to watch? And so we have all these things that we turn to. We think like, man, I'm really struggling with X, Y, and Z. <gasps> I know a podcast for that. I wonder if he ever did an episode on fill in the blank. Or man, the world is really weighing me down. I can't wait till 6.30 when that guy comes on the TV and I can, I can turn it on and I can hear what he has to say. And we begin to lean on these things. We say, in my dark hour... I trust the voice of this podcast host or this political party or this ideology or I, I trust my bank account to carry me through and lighten the load. 
Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't have opinions and you haven't, shouldn't have resources and you shouldn't allow voices into your life. What I'm saying is that God's word and the presence of God should not be anything but the first choice. He is the light of the world. He wants to shed light and illuminate dark places. And without him, you're actually walking in a life that is not the fullness of life. And I think we have a tendency towards being kind of reactionary in these things. I was thinking, what does that mean to be reactionary? And I was thinking, you know what? Everybody knows life is going to get hard. Even non-Christians know that life will get hard. That's not something exclusively that we know and other people don't. And sometimes we can live a life that's like this. You know what? I own a Bible, and I know where it is on the shelf. And when times get really hard, I'll go get it. That is not the invitation that God has for you, and it's not the invitation God has for me. The invitation is to walk with him and know that he is the light of the world. Every single day, he wants to light your path. He wants to be the city on a hill that sheds so much light that even in the darkest reaches, you can turn and see that he will light the way for you. The last thing I want to tell you is I was, I was prepping this and I was thinking, this seems like super heavy. And some of you are not in a heavy season. Some of you are like, man, I just got promoted. My kids got a 4.0 and life is good. This guy is like Debbie Downer today. So I want to tell you this as well. Maybe you're living a tremendous life and you feel like God is with you. Here's my encouragement for you. The light of Jesus can make your wonderful times even better. You, you want to enjoy and celebrate the things that God is doing well. Maybe in your faithfulness that you've pushed in, you've worked hard and you got a promotion. Lean into Jesus. I think he wants to make that celebration even better than you're already feeling it. That's what the light of Jesus is. Let's continue. Uh, verse 13 says this. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. So what do they do? The Pharisees, they hear this heavy statement. Now, if you've been following along, Jesus has been doing something. He's been kind of peppering them with these very subtle clues that he is saying, I am God. Yeah, thanks, Bill Jackson. He was like, that's the right answer. He's been saying these things that are insinuating, I am God, but he's not outright saying it just yet. Unless you're peering through the peephole of what is he actually saying. He's giving us hints and clues. He's not saying it outright, but I think the Pharisees are picking up on, I think this is where he's going. And so what do they do? They hit him with a legal argument. We don't care what you say about yourself because we got laws here in Jerusalem. I don't know what you do out in the boonies, but here in the big city, us smart folks follow the law. And the law is this. Your testimony is irrelevant unless you have two adult males who can testify to the same thing. You, my friend, are a one single adult male. Your testimony is void. Problem solved. And Jesus answered them. Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you don't know where I come from or where I am going. Pause right here for a moment. Even if I do bear witness just about myself, it is true. I think this is what Jesus is saying. Your law and your custom is there as a safeguard, but it doesn't get to determine what is true and what is false. It doesn't get to decide what is true and what is false. And this is what Jesus says. What I say, even without a second witness, is true the truth. 
I mentioned this the last time I was preaching. I, I think the Pharisees are using a tactic that still gets used to this day. We call it gaslighting now. It's basically to demean someone else's experience or say, oh, what you believe is true is, that's so cute and uneducated. But that's not really how the world works. It's, it it kind of goes like this. Like, Jesus, you say you're the light of the world. Number one, you're not following the law. You don't seem that smart. You kind of came from the boonies. Where did you get your master's degree or your PhD from? What letters are next to your name? What title do you have at work? Oh, you don't have a lot of that stuff? Your opinions are so cute, but they're not true. Let's leave truth to the smart people who know how to come to these conclusions. Anybody resonating with this? And this is how they tried to attack him. And this is what he says. They are talking up here and he is talking on a totally different plane because if they don't have the eyes to understand what he's actually saying, they're missing it. But listen to what he says. Just listen. I know where I came from and I know where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Where did Jesus come from? It's not a trick question. I don't have trick questions today. Where did Jesus come from? He came from the Father and the eternal kingdom of God. Let me remind you of a really famous scripture. In fact, if you have your Bible, it's really easy to find because it's like on page one or page two. Do you remember when there was nothing and then God called forth order into the world? What does he say? Let there be Jesus says, I'm not just the light of the world. I'm the one who called forth light into existence. I'm the one who provided light. And what does light do on the beginning of creation? It gives the resource necessary for all life. It literally creates time because now you have night and day. And Jesus says, I came from a place where I created light itself. And you're going to miss all of this because you don't realize that about me. And you don't know where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it's not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. So what is he saying? He's saying, I'm not going to get involved with this judgment game with you right now, but if you did want to judge, just know this. The testimony I'm giving you is not just my word, it's my word and God the Father. Do you need any more witnesses, or will those two count? That's what he's saying to them. Verse 17 goes on. As you can imagine, um, pushing back on people with this much authority and this much power is going to bring a reaction. And this is their reaction. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So there it is again. There's two witnesses. Verse 19. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? I want to pause here for a second. I was reading this week, and I read this in a commentary. It says this, in the ancient Eastern culture, to question a man's paternity is a definite slur against his legitimacy. So when they say, where is your father, we clearly know that they're not making the connection that he's talking about God. So what are they saying? They're saying, where's your dad? And in a world where everything is all about the family you came from, the name that you carry, the reputation and the honor that your family can bring with you, combined with the fact that they surely know 
that there is this story circulating about Jesus' birth story and who his dad is and was his dad there the whole time? Did he leave? Where is he now? What are they doing? The legal argument doesn't seem to be stopping this guy. Let's hit him with the social, you come from a bad family and have no place to say anything to anyone. Where's your dad? Riddle us that. This is an extreme insult. Jesus answered, you don't know me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. What is he saying to them? He's saying you, Pharisees, whose literal job it is to tell people about the one I'm speaking of, God the Father, the one who's supposed to bring them into communion with him, the one who's supposed to stand in the gap and provide sacrifice and worship and, and lead prayers and all of these things. It's your job to know God, and if you truly knew him, you would already be understanding what I'm saying. He's saying that the people responsible for leading others into the presence of God don't even know God. That's what he's saying. He goes on, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Now, this is an interesting little detail, and if you're ever reading the Bible and you notice these little details that you're thinking, like, why is that there? What is the detail, by the way? The treasury. Like, how many of you would think, like, the way that he's telling the story, he could just say all these things and not tell us where this is actually happening? Of course he could. So why is it there? Here's why I think it's there. It's because these people, they have legitimacy in the culture they live in. And they have it because people just continue out of faith and ritual to give money. And they just continue to give it. The treasury, it turns out, is, is this place in the outer court where there are, the, there are these like uh, barricaded in chests. Like you couldn't just like grab it and run away with it. But it's like a, a tithe box where people could come and they could give their voluntary tithes. So let's say you give the necessary sacrifice, you give the, the commanded tithe, but you want like a little bit extra blessing. So you dig in to your wallet and you pluck a few hundred dollar bills and you put them in there. Maybe you cough really loud so people turn their head and you're like, <coughs> oh, excuse me. <laughs> Do you remember? I'm not making this up. That actually happened. Do you remember? And right behind that man is a woman. And what does she have? Just a couple pennies. And what does Jesus say? She's given more than everyone else in here. This is the place Jesus chooses to have this interaction with him. And he says, your legitimacy is based on the fact that people just keep giving. And what do they do with the money, by the way? We know. Can you think of one thing they're going to do with that money? Because they're going to go into the treasury and they're going to get uh, enough silver to fill a little bag and they're going to give it to someone. Who are they going to give it to? Judas. Why? Because they're going to try every single thing they can do to get Jesus, and when it doesn't work, they just decide, you know what, we're going to flex our muscle and legitimacy, we're going to go into the treasury, we're going to get some of that silver, literal tithe money, and we're going to use it to bribe a guy to give us Jesus. That's how they use their money. That's how they use their power. That's how they seek their legitimacy. Money gives them influence, and Jesus intentionally chooses this place to challenge their authority and their influence. Again, John has noted this a handful of times, but it, it bears noting again at the end of verse 20. It says, no one arrested him 
because his time had not yet come. I, I love this, and if you haven't picked this up yet, I, I think you should. John desperately wants you to know, that's why he keeps repeating it, that even though these people are after him, and even though these people are going to uh, find somebody who will betray him and pay them off, and they're going to do everything to stack the deck, and they're going to arrest him, and they're going to crucify him, John wants you to know that it's not because of them. They don't get to control time. Time belongs to God and God alone. The reason they don't arrest him is because God is directing the story, not them. They're not in control of the story. God is in control of the story. And it's not Jesus' time. If you're taking notes this morning, I was thinking about this scripture, and I felt just kind of a, a deep conviction last night about it. And sometimes we don't use the word legitimate or legitimacy, but I, I think here's kind of the, the core of what that word means. It's, am I worthy? Do I belong here? What is my identity? How many of you would say, you could just nod your head or just keep it to yourself, that there are certain situations that you go into, maybe a social situation with some strangers or maybe a different mix of people, and there's a feeling in you that like somehow you got to prove yourself really quick to make sure they know that you belong in this setting. Have you ever been in that setting before? I can remember uh, going off to college and being like young, like a freshman or a sophomore in college, and sometimes being in a class with older students and feeling like, oh, geez, i, I got to prove to them I'm smart enough to be here. Do you know what I'm talking about? And so here's a question for you. How do you seek legitimacy? What do you do? Do you talk about your work a lot in a way that maybe is rounding up, maybe polished up a little bit better? You know, anybody ever watch The Office? You know, Dwight is classic for this. He, what is his job title? He's the assistant to the regional manager, but how does he often introduce himself? I'm the assistant regional manager. He's just assistant to the regional manager. And so people leave with the impression like, oh, he's actually like kind of a big deal. Do we do that? Do we maybe dress or walk or do something that shows off like, hey, I, I'm a mover and a shaker. I belong here. Maybe it's the, the car that we drive. Now, listen, this is what I want you to know if you're driving a nice car. I'm not telling you don't drive a nice car. I'm saying, is that something that you've staked your identity in, that you feel like I'm legitimate because I have this and I have that, because my kids are well-behaved, because their report cards hang on my, my refrigerator and they're really good grades, because I'm promoted at work and I have a big deal title? Is that what makes you feel like I'm legitimate and I belong here? Because if it is... That's not the call of Jesus. I'm going to tell you about the call of Jesus in a second, but I, I want to give you one nuance, and we have a, a second slide for it. I was thinking about this. There is a difference between seeking legitimacy and seeking excellence. Let me tell you the difference. The difference is, I'm going to go to work today, and I'm going to do everything in my power to do it with absolute excellence in the way that God has gifted me. This is my act of worship unto God. Do you know that that's what you're called to do at work? There's a difference between that and saying, I'm going to go to work today. And I'm going to knock it out of the park. And when I do, people are going to realize I'm a big deal. And I'm important and I belong here. Do you see the difference? God has called us to pursue excellence. 
And he's called us to pursue legitimacy, but not in those ways. These are the ways I, I see in Scripture God saying, this is how you be a legitimate person in the family of God. You want to know, do I belong here? Here it is. You are a sinner in need of forgiveness. You are willing to serve others even when it's inconvenient. There's this story where the disciples are walking on the road. I love it. And Jesus is eavesdropping on them. You ever thought about what would happen if Jesus was eavesdropping on you and then he turned around to correct you? Yikes. So they're walking on the road. And you know what they're arguing about? They're arguing about who's better. This is like part of the way I think deep down I know that they're teenagers because they're still arguing like, I'm better than you, right? I could beat you in Mario Kart. Yeah, but Jesus doesn't care about that. <laughs> and he hears them. They're arguing over who's, who's better and who's going to be greater in the kingdom of heaven. And remember what Jesus does? When they're settled for the night, he says, hey, I, uh, I actually heard everything you were saying on the road, and I want to correct you. He says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you should become the servant of all. You should be willing to serve when it's inconvenient. You should say yes to helping somebody out even when maybe you're short on sleep or you're exhausted or it's brutal on you and you think, man, can't someone else do it? The answer is this is your opportunity. Because why? Because in those moments, God shows you how resilient he is. You ever have a moment where you're like, man, I don't know how I did that on such little sleep and such little strength? What an opportunity for God to shine forth the light out of you. Now, for the sake of time, we better get going here. Verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away. I love what Jesus, this is what Jesus is doing. He's watching them. They clearly don't get it. They keep attacking him. And what does he say? He's not like, oh, this conversation is over. You guys just don't get it. He just keeps like doubling down. He said to them again, here's another quotation you're not going to understand. I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. The first thing I want you to see here is this, that he is telling the Pharisees, the ones who are in charge of the structure of leading God's people into worship, these are the authorities, these are the people who know God's word the best, and he says, you will die in your sin. Now, we hear that as evangelical Christians, and we think, oh, sin, bad. Would you agree? But we also think, oh, sin, forgivable. I'll pray about it. I'll ask for forgiveness. I'll repent of my sin, and then you know what? I'll take a deep breath, and I'll move on. How many of you would say, that's what I do every day of my life? Bless you. This is not how it operates for Jews. Have you ever read the book of Leviticus? Some of you need to be honest and just say, didn't make it through in that one-year Bible. <laughs> I've said this before, I, I used to do the one-year Bible, and I used to always just be like, oh, Leviticus, until I really realized the, the connections being made to the New Testament, I used to be like, oh, why am I reading all of this? But there are laws, there are regulations, there are details around every little thing to make sure you do not sin. And Jesus says, I'm going away, and you're going to try to find me? And in your turning of the hamster wheel, trying to come after me and attack me and gotcha, get me, you're going to die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Why does he say such strong words? Because it's clear he's already said it. You don't know the Father. And if you don't know him, you can't know me. And if you don't know me, you can't come where I'm going. Verse 22. 
So the Jews said, they're trying to make sense of what does it mean he's going to go somewhere we could never come. And the only thing they can think of in their pride is this. Will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? Now, I want to tell you what's going on here. I, I don't know about modern Jewish thought, but in ancient Jewish thought, to commit suicide was the worst crime against yourself that could possibly happen. In fact, there was a whole theology that those who had committed suicide rested in the lowest levels of Hades. And, and while that's like very sad and we could make a whole sermon about what suicide is, that's not, this is not that sermon. All of that is just to tell you this. This is what the Pharisees really think of themselves. They think of, he says he's going to a place we cannot come. The only place we could think of that this guy might go to that we wouldn't go to is the lowest level of Hades. I bet he's going to kill himself. That's how warped their thinking is about themselves. And why do they not fully understand themselves? Because they don't fully understand God. So Jesus responds to them in verse 23. You are from below. You following? You think I'm going to the lowest level of Hades? That's where you're from. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Anyone want to say amen? I got the apparel. <laughs> I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Okay, something just happened in verse 24, if we can put it on the screen, that's kind of mind-blowing. Um, and I want to set it up by telling you this. How many of you have heard um, people say, like, I like Jesus, great spiritual teacher, wonderful guy, the Bible has a lot of really good wisdom in there, but, like, I just can't find any time that Jesus says, I am God. Have you heard people say that? I am here to tell you that verse 24, Jesus says, in Jewish speak, I am God. Let me tell you what's going on here. In verse 24, it says this, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, some of you have a Bible actually open, and if somebody doesn't have the ESV version, you might have something going on on that word he. You might have he like in italics. You might have he in brackets like this. Or you might have no word he at all. Maybe some of your versions have a footnote. Because here's the deal, that word he is not in there. The word he is an insinuated he that the translator wants you to make sure, wants to make sure that you know Jesus is talking about himself. But it literally says this. It says in Greek, ego, ami. So it should say this. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. What is I am? We sang a song about it. How do you say I am in Hebrew? Yahweh. What did Jesus just say? He just said, unless you believe that I am, I am the eternal Yahweh God, the one that you're here to celebrate and remember his faithfulness and his provision and his protection of you, you're going to miss it all. That you're going to die in your sins unless you believe that. This is a, a very big statement. You can maybe circle it and think, hey, if anyone ever says, I don't think Jesus ever said he's God, you could simply show them this is exactly what he's saying. Now, verse 25. Now, again, Jesus corrects them. 
gives them a heavy-duty statement, and what is their response going to be? Get him. So they said, who are you? Who are you? I think this is kind of reading into the text some tone, and we can't 100% prove this, but I, I, I read into this the, the tone of, you're a fraud. You fake rabbi from the boonies with your little following and your big statements. Tell us who you really are. This is your chance to come clean right here at the temple. Tell us who you really are. Who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. AKA, you have plenty of information. I've told you everything I can. I've shown you everything I can. And if you're not getting it, that's a you problem, not a my explanation problem. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world that I have heard from him. So there's the in insinuation that here's your chance, Jesus. You can come clean. And his response is, I've never wavered. Everything I've said is cohesive and lines right up to you coming to a conclusion on your own. You're clearly not coming to this conclusion. But here it is again. Everything I've said is from the Father. I've been sent by him. Everything I've said is true. That's what I have to say. And he says this whole thing about, I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare the world to the world what I have heard from him. I was thinking about this passage a little bit, verse 26 in particular, if we could put it on the screen. Because I think there's something really interesting going on with this word judge. This is a legal term. Do you remember that the Pharisees come to him and they say, your testimony is not valid because you're not doing it the legal way? And then Jesus says, I have much to judge. I think there's this correction, this subtle correction that's happening, and it's Jesus saying, look, in this social interaction right now, you Pharisees think you are the judge of me. You can imagine a, a judge sitting maybe behind a bench on a big chair with the gavel and, and the accused person below answering for what they've done. Can you get this image? And Jesus is saying, you think that you get to sit on the judgment seat and you think in this interaction that I'm standing below you and I have to answer to you. But you misunderstand the whole situation because if you knew who God was, you would know I'm the one who belongs on the judgment seat and you belong answering to me. And I was thinking this is a, an image that gets played out throughout the rest of the, the New Testament, doesn't it? That there is a day where we will all stand before the judge. Matthew 25 says that he will separate the sheep from the goats. And I was thinking about this because I think deep down in me, I was telling uh, JT this morning that I, I feel like in this season of life, when I read the Bible, I get super excited. Then I read it again, and I feel like the, the seed that Jesus has planted in my heart is, listen, when you read about the Pharisees, don't write them off because there's a lot more to them that is also in you that needs to be rooted out. And this is the thing that I felt like, ugh. And it was this. I love to sit in that judgment seat. I like it. You want to know why? Because when you sit there, you're in control. Everyone else has to answer to you. Everyone else has to give you an explanation. And no one ever gets to question you. How many of you like being questioned? Not many of you. 
so I like it. And so here's a, a question I have. It's, uh, if we're not careful, we're going to slowly slip into sitting in that judgment seat. So when do you find yourself sitting there? And it could be all sorts of things. It, it could literally be this high judgment where literally you're questioning God. God, how dare you? You promised me and your timing is terrible. When are you going to deliver for me? How come you're not answering me? And we start to think somehow I'm the judge and I get to question God. He has to answer to me. Or it could be I have a big title at work. That's where I get my legitimacy. Therefore, you need to answer to me. And there's no kindness. There's no generosity. There's no, you know what, we're both on the floor being judged by God. So let's do this with grace to one another. And when we sit there, we begin to demand answers out of other people that we would never accept somebody demand from us. This is not a complete and totally formed thought because it's something that's still going on in me. But I think it's something that bears noting. When do you find yourself sitting on the judgment? Maybe it's a personal thing that you do where you just kind of jot it down in a notebook. Like, when do I feel justified to pass judgment on others? Do you see a trend? Is it, I always cast judgment on younger people. I'm realizing that trend, it's always younger people. Maybe it's all people who act like X, Y, and Z, and that's the trend, and God, help me. God, save me from this. I want to move forward with verse 27. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. They still don't understand. What's interesting, and we're going to see this in a second, is that there are people in this crowd who do understand. And they're the people without a voice. They're the people who feel like they fly under the radar. They always get the second-class seat. So listen to these words. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am just I am. When you lift him up, you will know. What is he talking about? He's not talking about when you glorify me. He's saying when you crucify me on the cross, there's going to be some events that take place and you will have to come to grips. You will have to reckon with the fact that the whole world is going to groan with what you've done. Then you will recognize that I am and that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. Verse 29, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Here's the answer to our question. Why does he keep speaking in a way that the Pharisees clearly don't understand? It's because they're not the only ones there. In fact, Jesus is not there to teach them. He's there to teach the crowd who has pressed in and said, I want to hear what you have to say. And they show up and say, we got to catch him in a gotcha we got to get that 30-second soundbite that we can cut out of a larger teaching, put it on the internet, let it go viral so he'll look really dumb. But there's other people there. They're sick and they're hurting. They've been left behind. They feel like Jerusalem is not a place that has their best interests in mind, and they want to hear what he has to say. And as he's teaching all these things, and there's kind of insults flying from the Pharisees, and they're trying to combat him, there's other people listening intently, and in their heart they say, I believe that he is. And the end of the section says, many believed in him. Now I want to invite the worship team back up, and I want to set up something for you that I, I think might be a little bit different. 
See, I was reading this section, and I was kind of preparing my thoughts as a sermon, and I, I honestly um, was feeling like, man, it, it feels a little bit heavy. But my spirit and my heart was not heavy at all. It was, I kept getting this message I, I felt like God was putting in my heart, and it's this. You know it. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord, that's what I felt like I was preparing with, was the joy of the Lord. And as I was preparing, I thought, this doesn't feel that joyful. But then I remembered something, and I, I started to dig, because I thought, is that right? Do I understand the Bible? Did I read something incorrectly? And I want to tell you this. And this is going to be a kind of a different way to exit today. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Do you love that he says that? This is one of his seven I am statements, and there's something very unique about this I am statement. It is the only one that he says about himself, and he also says about you. This is what he says in Matthew chapter 5. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Remember all those beacons on fire that everyone could see the city? He says, that's you. That's you, baby. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. What lamp is he talking about? They know. You can't hide that lamp, can you? If the fire is burning in you, you can't hide it. You put it on the stand and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I was reminded this morning, when Moses comes down off the mountain and, and he knows God, what happens to Moses? He shines. Not like figuratively, like literally, he is shining. And Jesus says, that is not unique to Moses. There is something in you that can shine when you leave these doors. There's something in you that can shine forth the Spirit of God that says, wow, there is something going on. I think that person knows something I don't know. It says that you give light to the whole house. This, this word, the whole house in Hebrew is the idea of like all the people. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When you pursue excellence, when you per pursue uh, uh, serving and loving people, no matter what the circumstance is, Jesus says it's not just forming something good in you, you are reflecting the glory of God and people notice. And what do they do? They glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is what I want to do. If you would stand with me this morning. Our worship team is going to uh, play a song. And this song is your exit. My prayer is that you would go forth with joy, that you would remember that everything Jesus said about being the light of the world is now true for you. And not in a heavy way, but it's an expectation. How is the dark world going to get light if we don't shine it? And so as we sing, um, we're going to sing kind of an upbeat, fun song. You're allowed to dance. You're allowed to laugh. You're about allowed to clap and sing it out loud. But as we do that, the doors will open. And when you're ready to exit, you can. But let's sing together uh, in our worship of God, proclaiming the light forth. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are the light of the world, and by you, you have kind of lit the flame of us that we can be the light of the world too. So God, thank you for inviting us to partner with you. We turn to you. We trust you that you will provide, that you will protect. And as you do, you invite us to go forth. So would our light shine brightly? Would people see our light shining brightly, and would they glorify you? Would you put us in situations, even uncomfortable ones, that, that give us opportunity to, to speak of your goodness? We love you. We ask that you would send us forward with joy, joy in our heart. There would be
dancing about us, there would be a lightness, that you would remind us of who you are and how good you are to us. Let's sing together. Remember that you are the light of the world. Would your life shine forth, that you would have the fullness of life that God promises in you. I want to let you know, if you need prayer for anything, there's always people willing to pray for you. We would invite you to, to come forward. You're welcome, if you're new, just to linger and hang out with the, the people of God here and have a wonderful Sunday. We'll see you next week.